On this special edition of Dear Jane, we celebrate our one-year anniversary by looking back at some of our most compelling conversations. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Scott Baker. It's been a year since we kicked off Dear Jane, and what a year it's been. We've had a wide array of guests, from priests to atheists, people advocating for moms and for dads, adoption experts, media advisors, and many more. All told, we've had 25 conversations focused on one thing, bringing together various sides of the pro-life movement for greater impact. Our first season was highlighted by our visit with Monica Snyder from Secular Pro-Life. Monica talked about the challenges of a pro-life atheist engaging with the movement. Yeah, there are several barriers to entry, I think. One of them is that in this, the more secular they are, especially actual atheists, the more likely they are to be in social circles, professional circles that are overwhelmingly pro-choice. So even if they already harbor pro-life views, they are very likely to feel alienated. We've had people come to us many times over the years since we've existed, delighted to realize we exist because they thought that they were the only ones. Or... They may be aware that other pro-life atheists or secular people exist, but they are very, very, very nervous about having their immediate social circles and professional and academic circles find out that they are pro-life. For example, we have several atheist volunteers who work with us on condition of anonymity. They have been enormously helpful, but they do not want their names associated with anything, and they don't want the people in their lives to find out that They are so into this that they will do activism. So we have that barrier to entry. Then, of course, secular people, not all secular people, but secular people are more likely to affiliate with traditionally left-wing viewpoints and left-wing circles. So even apart from the abortion debate, you're going to have sort of a feeling of alienation if you're taking what is traditionally seen as a very, very conservative right-wing position. Our group really strives to be bipartisan for that reason. Monica says it's very difficult for secular pro-life supporters to be vocal because many of their friends are on the other side. It's not even just the professional thing. It's their friend. It's people they're very close to and people they want to get along with and people they have a lot of ties to. And then you have something like the Dobbs decision comes out and everyone is mouthing off on social media and they're saying some very vitriolic things. It was actually a little surprising to me because from my perspective, Dobbs, it wasn't everything, but it was a big, important step forward for pro-life work. In my opinion, it was very big. And I felt enormous relief and joy and gratitude and surprise, like a a lot of emotions mixed with this sort of pensiveness about the whole nature of the debate. But I was surprised how many people on our side felt despair. And we had multiple people contact us privately, especially secular people over the ensuing weeks, feeling just unbelievably alienated and and worried that the forces against us are too powerful because they were in situations where all they see is tons of rage and vitriol and specifically directed at people who hold their views. And now the people saying this don't know they hold these views, but people they're close to, sometimes it was spouses. Sometimes it's you know, very close friends that you've known for years and years, you didn't even, you knew they were probably pro-choice. You didn't really talk about it. And then this happens and they're saying some really aggressive, angry things. And we had some, I had somebody ask us, you know, is there some kind of pro-life atheist Zoom meetup or something? I really Mm. need to talk to someone who gets it. 
In season one, we also examined the importance of the pro-life movement connecting with Gen Z. If we really want to change how, how the world sees the abortion issue, it has to start with young people. We have to think long term. And there is such a great opportunity with changing the hearts and minds of Generation Z because Generation Z is so passionate about justice. Jess Ford with Live Action says in order to reach the younger generation, we may have to convey the pro-life message in new ways. If we were to take abortion for what it is and, and maybe stop communicating it so much as, as um, you know, the topic, talking points that we had in the past and begin to transition and look at abortion as an injustice, you know, how it's an injustice to women how obviously we believe it's an injustice to the unborn child, but abortion, there's, there's so many things with it being uh, the industry that it is, which uh, with, with it being uh, something that is used as a um, sort of this empowering, this, this tool for women to have a leg up in society. It's, it's a lie. And so these lies that have been told for, for decades um, and ha- has resulted in just millions of acts of injustice. If we, we, if we begin to really talk about abortion as an injustice and explore that topic, I think Generation Z may, may, may grab onto that. And if so, I mean, watch out world, because um, this, this topic really will, uh, the, 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 the messaging will change. In season two, we were thrilled to visit with Dr. Kathy Cook, The prominent pro-life influencer and author says when it comes to communicating why we're pro-life, we should explain that it's not just about babies, it's about the human race. We're not saving babies with stinky diapers. We're saving people. And how many inventions have we lost to abortion? How many other children have been lost to abortion because that woman or that man did not live in order to you know, create a family. How many greats, you know, husbands, wives, and parents have we lost? How many politicians who could have rescued any number of countries in the world from sin? We're not talking well about the fact that we're saving people who are destined to live a meaningful life. Dr. Kathy says she's been encouraged by her work with pregnancy resource centers and the tangible support they provide to women and men seeking assistance through and after the pregnancy. I think there are great testimonies from men and women who have been through our centers who can testify to the way that they were loved and they were not judged and they were provided with material assistance so that the choice to uh, parent was not a hard choice. I think we could do a better job of communicating to the outside world that we do care about the family. We're pro-family. We want to get the men involved. And I'm so excited as I travel to see more and more pregnancy resource centers having legitimate dad programs. And I mean by legitimate, not just, you know, a statement at a banquet, you know, we love the dads, but they have a man cave where they do the counseling for the dad. You know, it's not pink and yellow. And uh, and I have a smile on my face when I say that because most centers don't even have pink and yellow rooms, but the, the thought would be that we do, and we really don't, but we have legitimate men coaching men on how to support their girl who now has conceived their child. And we would we'd be pro-marriage if that would be God's best for this couple. So I don't think we communicate that well, that we're about the family, that we want to save the family. I don't think we communicate well that we offer support often through age two. I was at a center recently. They provide support through age six 
So because they know that the longer that you're invested in parent education and material assistance, the less likely a girl will have another unexpected pregnancy. Or if she does, she will not be vulnerable anymore to abortion. She will be pro-life when she conceives that second child because she has seen that it is possible for her to honor the life of her child. We talked about surviving abortion with Melissa Odin from Abortion Survivors Network. She says being an abortion survivor can be a lifelong struggle. And there's a lot of emotion about whether survivors should even know their story. Parents in particular have a lot of emotions about survivors knowing their stories. And, you know, I guess I can relate to that a little bit through my own story. My adoptive parents knew full well that I had survived a failed abortion, that I had had health issues. And, you know, like many parents, they kept it a secret because they thought that was going to protect me from being hurt by that knowledge. And I absolutely understand it. But I can tell you that survivors have this feeling about them that something is different about them. You're you're set apart. A lot of survivors kind of describe it as you're on the outside of life and circles of people, always sort of looking in. You don't feel like you belong. And for a lot of survivors raised in their biological family, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of neglect and abuse. And so they spend a lot of time thinking, wow, there's something seriously wrong with me uh, that I'm being treated this way. So that's a little bit of the backstory. But all that to say, I would say most abortion survivors do not even know their story. One of the more frustrating things for abortion survivors is being told by the culture to keep quiet. Right. There's no other victim that I can think of in our society where we would say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But would you shut up? and not say anything about it? Would you not, would you stop trying to do something to prevent it from happening to other people? One of the things we like to do on Dear Jane is hear from pro-life supporters serving in unlikely places. Such was the case with Jess Meath from Democrats for Life. We talked about what they recommend when voters are faced with the common choice between a pro-life Republican or a pro-abortion Democrat. We talk about this all the time. And unfortunately, I don't have a very like, yes, vote for the Republican. No, vote for the Democrat and vice versa. It gets we have such a diverse membership. Like I said, um, pro-life is so broad. So our membership includes, you know, people who they're they're one voters and the abortion issue is the number one thing. And then we have people who, you know, or maybe are still learning about this issue and you know, still are like one foot in one side, one foot in the other. So I cannot speak for our membership and how they vote or how they should vote because um, our org is so diverse. But um, we we have seen, we, we speak a lot with our members and our members come to us for guidance a lot. And so at Dems for Life, though, I will make it abundantly clear that we never endorse a candidate who is pro-choice. Season two also gave us the opportunity to visit with Kelly Lester from And Then There Were None. Kelly talked about her experience as an employee at an abortion provider. And so we were directed and everything that we did in the facility was directed with the purpose of steering that woman towards the choice of abortion. And we were supposed to assume that if a woman came in that abortion was what her choice was. Kelly refuted the notion that the other side is truly pro-choice. They're no longer calling themselves pro-choice. 
they are now calling themselves abortion rights. They are now saying that they are pro-abortion. That whole mantra that was, you know, we want to make it safe, rare, and legal. That is not the mantra anymore. It's now abortion on demand without apology. Abortion is unstoppable. It's no longer choice. It is now we want women to be able to have abortions. And so, yes, I think what was happening years ago when I was working in the facility and what we've had over 600 and I think now 30 workers leave the abortion industry and all of us have the same stories, that it was, we are pro-abortion. We wanted to push abortion, push women to abortion. And if you started recommending that women take other choices like adoption or parenting, then you were terminated because that does not further their narrative. She says it's important to understand who is working at abortion clinics. And the reality is not many of the women who work in the abortion industry, are they themselves post-abortive, you know? And so part of what they are doing is they are trying to heal from their own trauma of abortion. Um, Many women who work in the abortion industry, not just women, but the people that work in the abortion industry, we have to understand that what the abortion industry does is they overcompensate people who are underqualified. And this is across the board. We have seen this across the board. And so that people are coming in at a certain uh, level of education or level of certification and making significantly more money working in this abortion facility. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear from two of the most powerful guests we've had on Dear Jane in year one. Stay tuned. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. Are you a pro-life organization trying to make a difference in the lives of abortion-minded women? Look no further than Choose Life Marketing, the pro-life agency dedicated to spreading the messages of hope and love. With expert services in web design, digital marketing, fundraising, and branding, CLM helps you reach those who need it most and provide them with life-affirming alternatives. Choose Life Marketing is your ally in the fight for life empowering you to make a lasting impact and change hearts one click at a time. Step up and join us in spreading hope to abortion-minded women and transforming lives. Choose Life Marketing, where marketing meets compassion. Dear Jane, the life-giving podcast. Welcome back to Dear Jane. On this episode, we're looking back at some of the highlights of our first year. In season three, we visited with pro-life OBGYN Dr. Monique Ruberu. She shared a story of encountering someone outside of an abortion clinic. I go and pray outside of the abortion centers every Saturday in downtown Philly. And there was a woman who showed up and she was carrying a sign and it said abortion is health care. And I was on my microphone, you know, trying to talk to people who are walking by. And I said, I have never in my life met anybody who doesn't regret abortion. And she looked at me and she goes, you have today because you've met me and I don't regret my abortion. And I said, love, you might not regret your abortion right now, but I promise you at some point before you die, you will regret your abortion. And when you regret your abortion, I want you to know that you can come to us and we will help you heal from that. And I just want to apologize for 
all of the people that did not show up for you when you were walking through that, for the people that didn't offer you help and assistance and money and love and compassion and kindness and didn't tell you that they would help you so that you could have your baby or you could give your baby up for adoption or you could, you know, co-parent or whatever. I'm so sorry, really, that they weren't there for you. Perhaps one of my favorite conversations from year one was with Scott Klusendorf from the Life Training Institute. Scott offered us some helpful tips when it comes to making the pro-life argument. So it's essential we state our argument formally to make clear what it is we are saying. So the pro-life argument is simply this. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. Now, Scott, there's only two ways you can beat that argument, really three. One, you can show that the conclusion does not follow, meaning the argument isn't valid. Or two, you can show that one or more of the premises is false, meaning the argument is unsound. Or I suppose you could point out that the terms are used unclearly. Outside of that, the argument stands. It won't do any good for our critics to say, well, you're a man, you have no right to speak. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not a man. It does not change the value of my argument. You have to refute it by showing it's invalid or unsound. It's not going to work to call me names. Uh, It won't work to say, well, that's just a religious argument. Again, arguments are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is a dodge, not a refutation. And what we have to do is keep bringing people back to the essential argument that we're making. Scott says there's a key thing to remember when talking to someone who is pro-abortion. That sometimes we have to change how people feel about something before we can change how they think and ultimately behave on, on something. Abortion is one of those examples. Unless you change how people feel about abortion at the intuitive level, it can be difficult to change how they think and ultimately behave. In season four, we had the opportunity to visit with notable pro-life advocate Father Frank Pavone. Father Frank also talked about the importance of confidently making the pro-life argument. We have all the arguments on our side, all the arguments from science, from from, from ethics, just using human reason, from sociology, psychology, history. It's all on our side in defense of life. So we need to make the purely rational and the purely scientific arguments as we speak to the general public. He reminded us to speak with love when talking to a woman considering abortion. We are with you. If you're tempted to have an abortion, we are with you. We're going to provide you better alternatives. We know how difficult your circumstances can be. We're not here to judge you. We're not here to reject you. If you've had an abortion already, we are with you. We're not going to condemn you. We're going to bring you to the peace, the forgiveness that God himself wants to give. So communicating that message is key. That's what has to permeate everything we say and do about abortion. This 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 sense that uh, a sense of solidarity to use another term that can describe what I'm what I'm saying. Once we have done that, a lot of people who as you say are just you know, they're not they're not really familiar with the movement. They're not really involved in the movement and they may be ambivalent about this issue. A lot of people then are going to be less defensive 
when they, you know, because when they see somebody coming along who's like, oh, this is an anti-abortion activist, you know, the defenses go up right away. And when we they when they see that we're we're not negative, that we're not uh, harsh, that we're not judgmental, then their ears open up, you know, and their mind and heart opens up. Okay, what's the rest of the message? Because they already said they're willing to help me, they're on my side, they're not condemning me. So what's the rest of the message? And of course, the rest of the message is well, we've got to protect these babies. We got to protect them by by providing help to their moms and dads. Uh, the pregnancy center movement is a great not only a great part of our movement, but an important part of the communication, like you're asking me now, of how how do we appeal to society? Show them that the bulk of the time and the resources of our movement are precisely helping those who who need an alternative to abortion. Dear Jane, the Life-Giving Podcast. It's been a great first year for the Dear Jane podcast. Feel free to check out any of our previous episodes to hear more of the conversations highlighted today. We look forward to more engaging guests coming up in year two. Don't forget to follow us on Apple or Spotify so you can be notified when there are new episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Dear Jane podcast. Thank you for listening to Dear Jane. I'm Scott Baker. Our producer is Kate Ewell. Our editor is Jacob McCormick. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition.